chapter 20 this morning. And I like everybody to be able to not only hear the Bible study, but to see uh, the words on the printed page themselves. And so if you find yourself here without a Bible this morning, men are coming up the aisle at this moment. If you just will raise your hand so they can see you, they will give you a Bible to read along with this morning. Sunday mornings, we're going through the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we're going to pick things up specifically in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. But in order to establish a little context, which is important, we'll begin our reading in chapter 19, verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, him being Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you, and therefore what shall we have? And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake, because of following him, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of God is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I'll give it to you. And so they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth and he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to be hired to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received the denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. And I wish, uh, I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? And so the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for every bit of your word. We thank you, Lord, for every single thing it's attended, intended to accomplish in each one of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would just commune with us right now as we study your word and that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would hear your voice as we study this passage this morning. It means everything to us, Lord, to know what it is that you want to speak to us, your will for our lives, what this Bible says to us, and what it means for us, Lord. And so we pray that you would do that by your Spirit this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please be seated. Here we have a parable of Jesus known as the parable of the laborers. And with all of the parables, it's very, very important in order to understand them, to recognize the context in which they're given. Jesus gives these parables or these stories uh, in a particular situation or circumstance, and uh, you can find it very hard to understand what Jesus is trying to say through the parable if we don't understand the circumstance that he is uh, addressing it uh, toward and applying it toward. And if we don't understand it, then we can't take in, and uh, the meaning and apply it to its lessons to our own lives. Jesus has just finished speaking to a rich young ruler about how to attain to everlasting life. And Jesus has told him that what is required is to become a follower of Jesus, to become one of his disciples. And he then called the, uh, and we become a follower of Jesus by putting our trust in him as our Savior. Jesus not only spoke to this young man and told him how it is that a person inherits everlasting life, but that he then went further and he put his finger on the one great thing in this young man's life that he knew would keep him from ever becoming a follower of Jesus. And the one great thing, the one great obstacle in his life from ever becoming a follower of Jesus was his love of money, his uh, making riches uh, uh, idolatry. And so Jesus called the young man to deal with it very, very decisively. And Jesus, in his dealings with this rich young ruler, as we saw last week, it, this isn't, uh, you know, this, this call that he makes to deal decisively with any idolatry or sin that would keep me from following Jesus. That wasn't something that he spoke uniquely to this young man. Uh, almost all of us, and, and certainly it's the intention of the Holy Spirit, when we hear that salvation is found by putting our faith in Christ, and then we hear about what it means now to become a disciple or a follower of Jesus, immediately our mind can be filled with that one or two great things, great sins or great idols or master passions that we worship in life that we will now need to turn away from in order to become his follower. And so what happened with that rich young ruler happens universally in everyone's life as we're, as we're contemplating putting our, our trust in, in him. And so this rich young ruler was uh, confronted with this by Jesus. He walks away from his conversation with Jesus, very, very sad, and we know at least for the moment unwilling to turn away from his riches in order to become a follower uh, of Jesus. And then Jesus declared to the disciples what is apparently an open secret in heaven, and that is the salvation of those who are rich is very difficult given the great temptations associated with riches and principally the, ten the tendency to trust in riches. But Jesus went on to declare that nothing is impossible with God, that he has the grace uh, to save anyone, whether we be rich or whether we be poor. Now, as the disciples are 
listening to this conversation of Jesus with a rich young ruler and as uh, they're watching all of these things happen before their very eyes and they watch the young man uh, walk away, Peter pipes uh, up in chapter 19, verse 27, and he speaks not just on his own behalf, but he speaks on behalf of all of the apostles that are there with him. And he says to Jesus, See, we have left all to follow you. And indeed they had. You've got to give them credit. They, they had done that. And then he posed the question, therefore, what shall we have? Translation, Jesus, we've been willing to do what this rich young ruler was not willing to do. We have given up everything to follow you. He has rejected your call and he gets to keep on being rich. We have obeyed your call and we are living day-to-day material. All of this seems backwards uh, to us. What do we get out of following you? Now, this is not uh, one of Peter's shining moments. But it was an honest question. It was a carnal honest question, but it was an honest question nonetheless. And this is very important to notice. What Peter wants from Jesus is a contract. He wants Jesus to promise something to him, give him his word, give him something official, something on the record stating that the life of sacrifice that they are living in order to follow Jesus, that that sacrifice that they've entered into is going to pay off somewhere. Hmm. And Jesus is going to teach him And thus as a result, that when you're dealing with a God who is as good and as gracious as our Heavenly Father is, that it's best not to enter into a contract with Him. It's best to leave the issue of reward in the goodness and the generosity of God, because if we will, God will then exceed every expectation we could have. Now, Jesus responds to Peter's question there in chapter 19, verses 26 through 30. And he said, now, in the kingdom age, and that's the thousand-year reign of Christ, which occurs... Okay, that even distracted me. God bless you right up here. So the kingdom age, he's giving them promises. What do we get out of this? So he said, in the kingdom age, in the kingdom age is the thousand-year reign of Christ... Right, between, right after the Great Tribulation period, but immediately before the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus said, as he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years, that these apostles would reign with him in a subordinate kind of way, reign with him in Jerusalem, and their focus would be specifically in ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel, which was as good a duty as, as a Jewish person could ever have promised to him. Additionally, he said, related to this life, if any of us are cast out of a home because of our faith in Christ, our family doesn't want anything to do with us, and and we're, we're put out, happens all over the world every single day, he said, we gain a hundred in the body of Christ Christians who would then welcome us into their homes. If we're excommunicated from our family because of our faith in Christ, 
we become a part of uh, God's family that numbers in the hundreds of millions all over the world. And then he declares, as a reward after this life, then there will be everlasting life in heaven. And when Jesus in verse 30 says, many who are first will be last and the last first, he's speaking of those like the rich young ruler. Many who are first in terms of advantage and blessings in this life will not have so envious a position in the life to come. And then many others who have had a less than desirable position in this world will be fabulously rich in eternity. Now Jesus continues to respond to to Peter's question uh, and his desire for a contract with God to make sure that he's not getting ripped off by spending his life serving the Lord. And and Jesus responds to this now with the parable of the laborers. And you notice in verse 1 of chapter 20, we're told there's a landowner who owns a vineyard, and he's in need of laborers to work in his vineyard. And that was a very, very common situation in the ancient world. Uh, A man owns a vineyard. It's time for the harvest to come, which tells us it's probably September, late September, early October. Maybe he's gotten uh, a weather report that rain is coming in. If you've ever uh, done grapes or know anything about grapes, even if you don't know much about grapes, one thing you know is you want to get them in before the rain. Because if the rain falls on them in that super ripe kind of condition, then that and and the rain hits it and the rain begins to dry, it will split that skin and that entire crop will then uh, be comparatively lost. And so here is a guy that realizes, i got to get these grapes in and i got to get these grapes in fast. And so you need laborers to do that. A guy that owns a vineyard, he doesn't need the same amount of laborers all the way through the year. You, just, you need a spike in labor supply at the time of the harvest. And so he would have gone to the marketplace in the village of the town that he lived near and where he would hire men who were for hire privately. They were just, laborers would go to a certain place where everybody knew in the village and uh, you could go hire them by the day. They represented themselves. This is something that's kind of foreign to us is a culture, except in recent years, we've seen where you can sometimes go to a store like a Home Depot or a place like this, and you'll see day laborers out in the parking lot, and they're doing much, it's a very ancient way of doing business. They're representing themselves, they're making themselves available for for labor uh, privately uh, for, for the day. And so this is the situation. The landowner here in the parable represents God, and the laborers represent us as Christians who are called by God to join him in his field, in his harvest, which isn't a physical uh, grapes, but his great spiritual harvest uh, of fulfilling the Great Commission and an endeavor to bring every man, woman, and child to faith in Christ and, and the harvest of souls into the kingdom of God. It is super important for us to realize that as Christians, every single one of us has been called by God to be engaged in God's work in some way, on some level, that produces an expansion of the influence of the kingdom of God in this world. It is not enough to simply become born again or to become saved and say, all right, I got my fire insurance, now I'm just going to live like I would have lived 
you know, except that now I'm going to heaven. But when we become Christians, there is to be an influence of my life for the kingdom of God in this world that, that I, I live in. Examples of how that happens, how we're an a, a influence for God and the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world. One way is just by our simple, personal witness for Christ that every single one of us has. That no matter where we are, whether we're at school or whether we're at work or whether we're in the neighborhood, whether we're at home, wherever it might be, that we just live a simple, obedient, Christ-like life. That is hugely influential for the kingdom of, of God. And all of us are called to do that. We are involved in this influence, this expansion of the kingdom, as we raise our children in the things of the Lord as we share the gospel with people who have never heard the gospel before. And then these are the things that we just, all of us do uniformly as Christians. But then there are specific things that God calls some of us to, and then he calls you to something else. And all of us have a a unique individual calling upon our lives uh, by the Holy Spirit for the expansion of of the kingdom of God, where there's God's personal, specific calling on our lives related to Christian service. In other words, he may call some of us to become a missionary. He may call some of us to work in the children's church. He may call some of us to uh, work in the parking lot or to be an usher at a local church. He may take someone and give them a God-given gift of administration or the gift of word of wisdom or the gift of leading or give them a gift of prophecy in order to give them a prophetic voice of representing God's definitions of right and wrong and then having them elected to some elected position within a city, whether it's a school board or whether it's a, a city council or whether it's a board of supervisors. And God can take and, and put a person in that place, gift them to be a great influence for the kingdom uh, of God. It could be also exercising the gift of helps or the gift of mercy in mentoring uh, children in public schools. Uh, it could be exercising the gift of mercy and becoming a volunteer at the Modesto Pregnancy Center. Not everything happens within the four walls or, or the grounds of, of a church. God calls us to do a lot of different things, specific things uh, to us. It could be being a Bible teacher, teaching the Bible to some group of, of people, counseling people from the Bible. That's just teaching the Bible one-on-one or to couples or maybe sometimes a larger group. And these, uh, these kinds of things that God does where he calls us and we're all to be uh, one thing in terms of living this Christian life, but then he calls us and he gifts us to do things where maybe I'm doing this, but you're not, but you're doing something that I'm not in accordance with God's calling and, and with his gifting. Every Christian really needs to be in the mix of things on planet earth in some way that is God-directed for the expansion of the influence of the kingdom of God in this world. And the Bible teaches that every single one of us is individually not only called but equipped by the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts 
to be successful in that calling. I think it is also very important to realize that our faithfulness to God's calling on our lives for service is one day going to be rewarded. God's going to reward that. Sometimes I can be losing people at this particular point. This is preaching the obvious. But again, how many people become Christians and never give one thought to God's call on their life? Much less to discover it. Much less to understand spiritual gifts and how they operate. How many people just take the salvation and never realize that God now wants to use us in this world. So this is a very, very important parable that we're, that we're reading about here this morning. Very important for us to realize that not only does God call us to be an influence for Him, but then He will reward our faithfulness uh, to His Spirit-directed service in, in and through our lives. Paul put it this way to the church at Corinth. He said, Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paul wrote at the very end of his life, this same issue, writing to Timothy. He said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Sometimes uh, people have the attitude that uh, our reward in heaven shouldn't be much of a concern to Christians, that somehow that's kind of a a base thing to think about or some kind of a carnal thing for us uh, to think about, that it's somehow it's, it's unspiritual. Paul thought about it. It was a great joy to him in the final days of his life to realize he had run faithfully and that on the other side of that faithful service to the Lord it was going to translate into reward for God's glory on the other side of, of this life and in the life to come. And he not only cared about it, but he encouraged Timothy to care about it also. Jesus instructed us as Christians to care about it. Care about that reward that we're going to receive one day for faithfulness. He gave the parable of the ten minas, in which the good and faithful servant is greeted by Jesus himself at the end of a good and faithful life as a Christian where the Lord will then say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And he was speaking of eternal rewards. Now, verse 2, we'll, we'll be out of here by dinner time, so just don't sweat it. At verse two, at the mar- back at the marketplace, a negotiation occurred between this landowner and between the laborers, and it was agreed that they would be paid one denarius for a day's wage. And that was, the, that was a commonly accepted wage. If you were blue-collar, you did this kind of work, a denarius was what you'd get paid. It was recognized as a fair wage. Now, all of this is probably taking place sometime before 6 in the morning, because when you hired a day laborer, you hired him for a whole day. There weren't unions and these kind of things. You hired them from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Because that's when you had light. 
So they, didn't, they couldn't bring generators out into the field. Tra- there are no tractors, none of this kind of stuff. So you, used, you made every bit of use that you could of light. So these guys were getting hired to head out in the field six in the morning, and they would have worked until uh, six in, in the evening. It is, again, very important to note that this, is, this first batch of workers is the only group of workers who will go to work for the landowner that day who possesses a contract with him. No one else will demand a contract. Now notice in verse 4 about uh, the third hour, that would be 9 in the morning, landowner still needs workers, so he goes to the marketplace, he finds workers that are standing there idle and waiting to be hired, so he hires them, sends them into his vineyard. But it's very important to notice, there's no contract. He does not make a contract with them. The landowner promises them, whatever is right, I'll give it to you. You just trust me, I'll take good care of you, you won't be disappointed. And trusting in the goodness and the generosity of the landowner, that group of people goes into the field to bring in those grapes. Now these workers, getting hired later in the day, they would have expected less than a denarii. That would have been their expectation. Jesus does the same thing, or the scene is repeated over and over again in verse 5. At the sixth hour, which would be noon, at the ninth hour, which would have been three in the afternoon, would not have been unusual for a a owner of a field to gauge things through the course of the day. we got this much more of this crop to bring in. This amount of labors isn't going to do it. And then through the day to keep going back to that marketplace and grabbing more and more labors to hire throughout the entire, entire day. So in verses 6 and 7, the owner comes, even comes and he hires at the 11th hour. This is just an hour before quitting time. And, and he hires the laborers who remain to be hired. And uh, so he's wanting to get this in before we lose this last hour or so of, of daylight. We are plainly told that these workers are not standing there idle because they're lazy. I've heard these guys referred to as slackers and they're, they're idle and if a guy hasn't found work by five in the afternoon and the end of the day is six o'clock, he can't be much of a worker. That's not why they're standing there idle. They give the reason for their, their idleness there, their, the fact that they're not working in someone's field and they, they declare that it's because no one has hired us, no one had given them the opportunity to work. As soon as they had an opportunity, they took advantage of it and straight away they went to work. They too go into the harvest field, no contract. They're completely trusting in the generosity and the goodness of the landowner. Then payday happens, verses 8 through 10. How many of you like payday? I love payday. I love payday. I, I, when I was a kid, they didn't have McDonald's and all these different places to work and stuff where, you know, kind of entry level when you're in high school and stuff like that. So I, I was raised in Napa, so you did ag stuff. So you cut grapes, you pick prunes for your school clothes. That's what you did. And uh, my brother and I, we cut grapes a little bit, but we cut ourselves more than we cut the grapes. And uh, so we realized we didn't really have kind of a, a, a great, uh, we'd have a great future in that if we still wanted to own all of our fingers by adult life. So uh, we ended up 
picking prunes, which kind of occurred about the same time, a little bit earlier in the season. And so we pick prunes. You can't cut yourself on prunes. They're on the ground. They're little round things, and you fill up the boxes. It was safe for us. And in those days, Napa was filled with prune orchards. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were more prune orchards that certainly nearer Napa than there were uh, grapevines, uh, vineyards. And, uh, but I, I, do, I will say, I do think Napa made the right move by drifting toward the grape industry versus the prune industry. If you ever drive up valley, it's called up valley as you head towards St. Helena and the Napa Valley, and they got this great big sign, and they quote Robert Louis Stevenson, and the wine was bottled poetry. Now, I don't know what you do with the prunes. The prune juice was bottled. Now, let's see, we got, I mean, it did take a lot more work on that. So... Payday, we got paid at the end of the month. You worked a month, you got paid. We were so excited to get paid. Well, in that culture, you got paid every day. Because as a laboring man like that, you had to get your pay at the end of the day in order to feed yourself and your family that night. And according to the law of Moses, you had to pay these laborers every single day. They lived that, that, their margins were that fine. They worked for you that day. Don't even, don't, it to, the law said to the landowners, don't even hold it back from them till the next morning. Give them their money that night, says God. Because here they are, they, they were hired for the day, paid for the day, and because they were living day by day and God knew it. Now the owner chooses to pay the laborers uh, from those who were hired last, the 5 o'clock folks, uh, to those that were hired first, the 6 a.m. folks. And surprisingly, as the pay is given out, those that were hired at 5 o'clock were given a full denarii, a full day's wage for one hour's work. Now you put yourself in the place of those who were hired at 6 a.m., don't tell me it's not in you. Maybe some of you are super perfect. But if I'm in that crowd and a guy that worked one hour got a denarii, I'm thinking, listen, I may not know math that good, but I can multiply one times 12. I've been here 12 hours. He's here one hour. I'm going to get 12 denarii. Pull out my cell phone. Honey, go ahead. Buy the refrigerator. I made a fortune today. If they didn't think they were going to get 12 denarii, they would have at least thought they'd get two, three, four times what this, this group of people uh, got. And then, to their surprise and their disappointment, they were paid one denarii too, just as their contract stated. Now, in verses 11 and 12, the response, you can expect the response, you feel it inside. They complained against the landowner. And their complaint was that this is completely unfair to pay a person the same wages who had worked only one hour and those who had worked 12 hours, including working through the hottest part of, of the day. That, that was, it's wrong to put those two workers on a par with one another. And I'll tell you, if I was in that, in that situation, I'd... I'd that would be uh, tumbling around inside of, inside of my mind. And, and that, that was their disappointment. And that's what troubled them. And it troubles a lot of us sometimes the first, when we're the first to be hired. It's okay to admit it because that's the attitude that Jesus is, wants to deal with in their lives and that's why he gives the parable. 
The fact of the matter is that God knows that in the course of our service to him, we're going to run into an awful lot of what doesn't seem right or fair by our definitions. He is very lavish with his grace in ways that is sometimes very hard to understand and sometimes hard to accept. I've been serving him since I was just a pup. And I've walked with him and then I here I am a Come and start a church and, and here struggling for 40 years, pastor in this church, and it becomes a certain size, and some kid opens up a storefront down the street, and they got 10,000 people there in three months. He doesn't even know about the heat of the day. He doesn't know hard work. He doesn't know one-tenth of what I know. God, God can be funny about His grace. Now, the landowner's response to them, verses 13 through 15, he reminded them he hadn't done any wrong to them in being generous to these other people. They had negotiated for a denarius. He paid them a denarius. And and their complaint is not so much that he had been unfair to them, but that he had been so generous uh, with, with the others. They would have been okay if they had only received a denarius and the one-hour folks received one-twelfth of a denarius. That, that, that would have, they could have stomached that very well. The owner, in their mind, had been complete... The owner speaks to him and says, I've been completely fair with you because their problem was not with him but with their own expectations. And he told them to go their way, explaining that he had paid the last men the same as he had paid them because that's what he wanted to do. And it's my wealth and I can do whatever I want with my wealth. And in verse 15, he also rebuked them for their jealousy. An evil eye is a jealous eye. It's it's an envious eye. And only, Jesus is saying, an envious eye or an envious heart would process what they had just witnessed the way that they had, finding fault in the goodness and the generosity of, of that that land owner. The moral of the parable is there in verse 16. And that is that there will be surprises in the matter of rewards at the Bema seat or the reward seat of Christ following this life. But I want us to just close with three short lessons that we pull from this parable concerning Christian service, a service that we're all in. Number one, it teaches us that our eternal reward for service is not based upon how long we have served the Lord, but based upon how faithful we have been to the opportunity God has given us. Our eternal reward for service is not based upon how long we have served the Lord, but on how faithful we have been to the opportunity that God has given us. We notice that each person, person's reward was the same. And the reason it was the same is because each one made the most of their opportunity. The 6 a.m. folks did. The third hour folks, sixth hour, ninth hour, eleventh hour folks, they all made the most of the opportunity that the landowner gave them to work in, in his, his vineyard. And, 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 and 
That's, that's what they did, even though they didn't all work the same amount of time. Each laborer entered into the harvest when they were called. And it's just that they were all called to enter into that harvest field at different times. There are some people who are called at the start of the day. And these 6 a.m. folks are a picture of those who are saved at an early age, raised in a Christian home, saved at an early age. They begin their service uh, to the Lord very early in life. Then you have those that are called in the third hour, 9 a.m. They're a picture of those who get saved and they begin their service to the Lord with a quarter of their life already gone. They're now young adults. Their childhood is over. Then there are those that are called in the sixth hour and they represent those that get saved after their life is half spent when they're in their uh, 30s or in their early 40s. We talk about 50 being middle-aged. You'd I'd feel better about it if I knew more hundred-year-olds. The ninth hour represents those that come to the Lord and begin to serve Him when three-quarters of their life is spent. Maybe we'd say they're in their sixties. The eleventh hour is people that come to know the Lord, they put their faith in and begin to serve Him very, very late in their life. And the parable is not saying that the man who wastes all of his whole life as a Christian, does nothing to serve the Lord, is going to have the same reward as the the Christian that has served the Lord faithfully for years. It teaches if two people take full advantage of the opportunity to serve the Lord, when that opportunity comes, then the reward is going to be the same, whether the opportunity comes early or whether it comes late. Point number two is this. It teaches those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time, and we've served Him for a long time, that we cannot properly judge God's heart toward those that come to know Him later in life and thus have a shorter opportunity with which to serve Him. Uh, We think think of fairness solely in terms of, of ours, We would tend to think that a person that served the Lord for 60 years is going to have a far greater reward than a person that served the Lord for 10 years. But the Lord may reward them equally. And it's not that the person who serves for 60 years gets less than he deserves, but that God gives the other more than we might think that he deserves. Here's a problem. The problem with us judging from outward appearances about what is right for God to give to others, is that there's a whole world of things that goes into God's decision-making that you and I never see, can't know. And if we knew it, I don't know that we'd allow it to enter into our our thinking and our uh, decision-making. Examples. Some people are raised in a godly Christian home. Again, they're introduced to the gospel at an early age. They put their faith in Christ at an early age, and they just seamlessly flow right into an entire lifetime of service for the Lord. Praise the Lord. That person has made the very most of the opportunity that's been given to him. But another person's born to Muslim parents in Iran. 
spends his entire childhood and his young adult life and all being indoctrinated into that religion. They're 60 years old before they ever hear the gospel and become saved. And now, not only are their years to serve shorter, but the harvest field that they serve in is a harder one in many ways. And God takes all of these things into account. The culture a person's been raised in. The obstacle that that culture oftentimes represents to faith in Christ. Their age when they heard the gospel. Their religious background. The difficulty of Christian service in the part of the world that they're serving the Lord in. There is a lot more involved in this than seniority or time and title. And only God is aware of all of these things, and only God is aware of what opportunity each person has had. We talk about all things being equal. Almost never are all things equal in this world. And God knows it. And He knows how to rightly judge what we know nothing of. A woman quietly faithfully raises her children in the Lord all alone, no husband. Another woman lives and dies as a missionary in Colombia, and yet both of them receive their denarii for having taken full advantage of the opportunity that had been given to them. There's a lot more than meets the eye in all of this, and Jesus is telling us that we really don't know everything that's necessary in order to come to any conclusions about the faithfulness of another person, much less what kind of reward they're going to get or should get. And I think that that's why Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, a very carnal church, and he wrote to them, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Why? Because another person is no basis of comparison for me to whether I'm being faithful or not. God can take another man or woman, call them to do something, and He gives them greater grace. He gives them greater influence. He gives them greater gifting. They're knocking the ball out of the ballpark every time with everything that they do. I'm batting 189, but it's because my eyes are crossed. And somehow that brings glory to God. So this person's doing this whole big gigantic thing. And if I look at them and I think, wow, what I'm doing is just small potatoes. It's nothing to compare to that. I mean, anybody that's doing less than that ought to quit. We don't have the same gifting. We don't have the same calling. We don't have the same anointing. And at the same time, on the other side of the spectrum, where you've got someone over here that is doing next to nothing as a Christian, and they just got this little kind of thing going on. It should be way bigger, much more fruitful than it is. But they truly are a slacker in being faithful to the Lord. And then we can look over that, think they're the basis of comparison. And wow, I'm doing better than them. But God has entrusted you with two, three, four times the gifting in the anointing that He's given to them. So on the one hand, if we compare ourselves with one another, we're going to be tempted to condemnation. Every time we see someone doing more and, and God entrusting more to them, or we'll be tempted to pride every time we see 
where, where we're doing more than what someone else is doing. It's not wise to think in these terms. The safe place is to discover what has God called me to and then be faithful to that. And I can't look at another person to discover that. Paul said to the same church at Corinth, he said, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. You folks judge me all the time, he's saying, people at Corinth. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself. And yet, I'm not justified by this. But he, that is God, who judges me is the Lord, and therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring bo- will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Paul said, I don't even judge my own ministry. Because he says, I don't know perfectly what kind of an anointing God has given me. And what kind of a gifting God has given me. And when he looks at my life, what he expected me to accomplish versus what I, I think I ought to have, have accomplished. He didn't know whether he was doing very great in the ministry or whether he wasn't doing great in the ministry. And instead of coming to any kind of conclusions even about his own ministry, he simply gave himself to being faithful to the opportunity that God had given to him, knowing that the reward would take care of itself. And I close with this. Third point, for any of us who are in the middle of our life of service and sacrifice, and as we find ourselves in the middle of our service to the Lord, and all service to the Lord ultimately means sacrifice. I cannot be like Christ without sacrifice. I can't grow into maturity without sacrifice. Every one of us, as we are faithful to God's calling upon our life, it will mean the sacrifice of a lot of things in order to be faithful to Him. So we're going to be confronted with that sacrifice in our lives. And at that point in time, we're going to be tempted to think, I wonder if all this sacrifice, all the long hours, all the rejection, all the persecution, uh, all of these things is going to be worth it one day. And if like Peter this morning, some of us might be tempted to ask for a contract with God, some guarantee from God that one day it's all going to be properly rewarded. And Jesus says through the parable, it's worth it. It's worth it now. And one day it will be even more obvious how worth it it is. And the reason that we can know that our sacrificial service is going to be worth it is because we are involved with a very generous and very gracious landowner, God the Father. And as we simply trust Him to do what's best in our lives in this area, none of us will be disappointed And if we'll just leave this issue of reward in God's hands, stay just focused on what God has called us to do, God's reward will exceed our wildest dreams. Paul knew it to be true. 
Paul, I, I don't think anybody, I've never met anybody that could walk up and say, I've had a harder ministry than the Apostle Paul. That's about as hard as it gets. And yet he had one experience that forever inoculated him from self-pity in that service. When God, at one moment in time in Paul's ministry, gave him a vision of heaven. And Paul walked away from that and he said, I reckon, as he wrote to the church at Rome, it Rome, says in the New King James, for I consider, that's way too civilized. The Old King James had it better. I reckon. Maybe I, maybe I just like to say reckon. I don't get to say reckon very often. I get to go home. Honey, I reckon we're going out to dinner tonight. <laughs> so maybe you get to. I don't get to. She said, what in the world happened to you? But I like that word reckon. And Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Talking about heaven and eternity. The word reckon literally means to weigh in a balance. He said you can take all the hardship that you'll ever experience in a life with Christ and service to Him, put them on one side over here, and then you put the glory and, 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 and all of the reward that's going to be associated with it, and you put it on this side of the scale, and there's no comparison between the two. No comparison at all. How beautiful do you think heaven is? <laughs> what if you could just spend two minutes there? come back. You'd be all tweaked and everything for the rest of your life. He went back there. The Apostle Paul, he said, God gave him this revelation and then he, who are you going to describe it to? It's like the old joke about the pastor golfing on Sunday. Got a hole in one. Who could he tell? What's he doing out there on a Sunday? So it's the same way Paul got this glimpse of heaven and all, and then, but when, you, when you've been through an intense experience like that, you can only really explain to somebody else who's been through the same thing. That's what soldiers go through. And who, so who could he talk to about? I didn't know anybody else that had the same experience. So he said, if I, if I tried to explain it to you in human language, I'd just mar the whole thing. I can't. Just, it's worth it. Is faithfulness to God's calling upon our lives worth the sacrifice? If you're wondering this morning, most of us will wonder sometime in our Christian life, the Bible's answer from this parable is a resounding yes. Stay faithful. You are trusting in a good and a gracious God. You will not be displeased with how he rewards you for your faithful service. If you sit here today and you don't know Christ yet, and uh, you say, well, well, I'm 60 years old or I'm 75 years old and I mean, my life's about you know, spent in, in some respects and all, what good does it you know, now to start walking with God and serving him? It's never too late to make a difference. Never too late to be saved. Never too late to make a difference for God. Now give me an example. Thief on the cross. Now that's an 11th hour plus thing you got going on there. Two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus. That thief on the cross just has hours left to live. He puts his faith in Christ and then what does he do with the remaining hours of his life except to witness to the other thief of the sinlessness of Christ. 
He made the most of the opportunity that he had. He will have the reward of one who served all of his life. And how many people have come to know the Lord down through 2,000 years of history based upon the account of the thief's faith upon the cross? We don't know what God's going to do with even minutes of our life left once we entrust it to him. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you this morning to begin that relationship with God, receive salvation as a free gift, and then begin a life of service and meaning and purpose as we live now for the Lord, the only one worth living for, the only thing worth living for, His work in this big, empty world that we live in apart from him. Let's stand together and we'll pray.